Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 182 of Hollywood Anonymous. Today's guest is comedian and actor Brian Scalero. Uh, it was recorded on Facebook Live because we are in the middle of a COVID-19 pandemic here in the United States and Los Angeles. Either way, uh, it ended up being a really fun show. Hopefully, you will enjoy. So, Brian Scalero, thank you for coming on the show. Um, sure, thanks actor, for having me. All around great guy. Um, John's probably yeah. going to have to do a lot of the conversations here, everybody. Yeah, um, yeah. sounds good. And I'm going to keep disappearing, and so that just gets frustrating. But um, well, when you when you can pop in, ask some questions, hang out, smile, be yourself. And he's gone. Yeah, all right. How you doing? How man? are you, John? Good. Oh, all right, man. Yeah. I'm uh, just just bored to tears. You know. Are you just still? Uh, are you still over by Runyon? Still in the same spot? Yeah, I, just, I moved to a different apartment, but in, in the same building. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I had, they, were reno, they, they were renovating. They decided to renovate my apartment, so they kicked me out. Wow. So, uh, so I moved. I moved into another apartment. Oh, okay. Same, same yeah, kind yeah. of, uh, same kind of layout. No, much smaller. Trying oh. to save money, you know. Yeah. You know. Believe me, they stopped. Hi- they stopped. They stopped hiring fat guys as regulars, you know. So now I got to. Uh, I feel gotta like- save my money. I feel like they stopped hiring. You did. You had a. You had a, a commercial running though. What was the I, was, I, was, I wasn't talking about commercials. Yeah, but the Snapple commercial. I was a mango. Yes. I went yeah, from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I went from third lead on sitcoms to fourth mango. But but really, think went about down it. a little bit. But think about it. That time when you got to be fourth mango was a time when like people i i wasn't getting any auditions like this yeah, it, definitely I'll ask, yeah it helped me out a bit but it's just like i noticed that uh, the a lot of the uh, the usually the best friend when i was growing up the best friend on a tv show or in a movie was always like a heavyset guy and uh so when i started being on tv on three sisters and stacked i was the heavyset i was just like the normal looking guy but now yeah. that's been replaced by the black friend you know what i mean so now they went from fat friend to black friend and um uh, so now, now I'm I'm coaches on the Disney Channel. I'm I'm a mango. Like it's just, it's not the pun, the money's not as good. It's not as good. But do you still like when you do get those roles? You still have fun with them, right? Yeah, no, I still have a good time. It was a lot yeah. like uh, Once Upon a Time in America. When I was watching that movie, I had did you see it? Uh, Once Upon a Time in America. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh Once yeah. Once Upon a Time yeah, in Hollywood. Yeah. The uh, in the beginning, the uh, Al Pacino tells him. Uh, you know, you were the guy beating people up and now you're getting beat up uh, as the guest role. And uh, and it's, that's the whole crisis he has in the movie, Leonardo DiCaprio. And then when he meets the girl, the little girl, she's like, uh, she's playing a guest role. He's playing a guest role. And she's like, oh, you just got to, she's like t- teaching him basically that the love of acting. So then he becomes an actor. And at the end of the movie, the Hollywood gates open up and he walks in. But my point is like, I got to the point where he gets in the movie where it's like, okay, I'm no longer the funny guy. I'm now the guy making the other people funny by setting them up. And uh, that was a hard pill to swallow, but I'm doing okay. I enjoy it. I, en- yeah. I enjoy acting. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Brian, yeah. Brian, can you guys hear me? Uh, yes. Yeah. Do, uh, can we take a step back? I'm just curious as to uh, where are you originally from? Like, wh- what got you out here? Like, where did you come New from? York, New York. I was from New York. I did a, I started, it was a great place to, um, to live because when you started stand-up, you were – you didn't have to pay. Like I had a small job. I used to work with mentally handicapped people. So that paid the rent. And then at night I would go out and do stand up. And that I also have some days off where I could audition. So 
I was, I, I'm very luckier than somebody who starts in Peoria, for example, that I was already in Manhattan, you know? And you I actually did grew a, up in Manhattan time? Brooklyn and Queens and Manhattan, yeah. And okay, then when so you're I had, city guy, okay. Yeah, so when we had, there were auditions, back then you could audition for a part in New York for LA. And so it was very, that doesn't happen as much anymore, but I yeah. auditioned, I auditioned for a pilot called Everything But the Girl. Uh, it was written by Steve Korn, who was a writer on Seinfeld and a writer on uh, uh, Stand Alive. I think if you watch, um, if you watch an episode of Seinfeld, they have a character named Steve Korn, who was the guy, who was the kid who got the uh, the the uh, the fund for when uh, George Costanza's wife oh, died. Oh yeah, when he was going to be the. <laughs> so that's written by Steve. That, that they named the character Steve Korn because Steve is a really nice guy. So Steve had a pilot with uh, Tiffany Amber Thiessen and Mackenzie Aston. John Aston's son, the other son. And uh, so they hired me to play the uh, heavy set best friend. And, uh, and I was. And it was a great pilot. And then uh, it didn't get picked up. He got beat by Scrubs, which is why I fucking hate Scrubs. <laughs> and then every time Scrubs is on, I'm like, fuck you, because we were right there. Anyway, so uh, they put me, uh, there was a writer on the pilot who wrote for a show called Three Sisters. Not a lot of people remember it because 9 11 happened. And Emerald was also our lead in the, the, the sitcom Emerald. So I got put on, I pretty much just got thrown onto three sisters because they liked me on the pilot. So then they gave me five grand to move out here. I lived in the Universal Hilton for two weeks, spent oh, wow. five oh, grand wow. there. My, Michael Jackson was in the hotel room above me, which is odd. And uh, then eventually I just stayed. I just thought things were good for like seven years. Yeah. And I, I you know, and then the, the world kept changing YouTube and fucking. Facebook and then uh, it was, wait, uh stacked reality was after, shows stacked was after three sisters. Yeah, three sisters. Then there was a ABC pilot I did with Tom Shadiak, who was the director of Ace Ventura and Nutty Professor. Did a pilot with him. We shot a second episode. Still didn't get picked up. I got a CBS holding deal one year, and then the following year I got stacked, which ran for two years. And then the writer strike happened in two thousand eight, and I, everyone got shoved down a level. So now I'm a guest role. Let's take a step anyway, back for a second. Let's take a step back to something you said. What do you, what what is with the uber rich people who have a gazillion homes hanging out in hotel rooms? Like I what what is that about? That's a really <laughs> Well, I don't think I think he was probably in town doing some universal and he needed a place to sleep. So uh, he went to a hotel. Yeah, what but do you think he should so have a house for the weekend? No, but didn't he have like didn't he have like houses? <clears throat> what? What'd you say? Yeah, but I don't think they, I don't think they have to go to the house when they're visiting. Because I don't think his house was in L.A. He had a house, yeah. or did he have a house in L.A.? I have no well, idea. I, but I mean, that's the thing. It's like you're right, Brian. If he's just if he's just in town doing something at Universal, it's like no, I'm going to stay and I'm going to rent out a floor and take that whole floor. Yeah. And he pretty well, much did. You, yeah. What What did you guys do together while you were there? He wanted <laughs> me on. He wanted me on all fours, and he was he wanted me to spread my ass open. And I was like, hey, my mother's in the next room. And he was like, don't, don't worry about that. <laughs> and uh, you, yeah, he had another room behind the room. I'm assuming you know, you're, referencing, you're referencing the, uh, the documentary. Yeah, well, I'm assuming you believe what you saw in the documentary. Well, first of all, do you think that Corey Feldman defends him because he doesn't know he wasn't cute enough for Michael Jackson to rape? Have you, do you guys know about the new movie with Corey Feldman? <laughs> yeah, I, haven't seen, I, haven't, I haven't seen it, no. I was oh. just making a dumb joke. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I don't know if I believe it or not. I always 
So the thing is that I've also been on the opposite end of somebody who makes up lies about you. I've been on at least three times in my life. I've been on that. And I still like get judged by people who I haven't seen in 10 years who heard that rumor. And, and uh, I'm like, that, that's not what happened, you know, but okay. To believe it instead of checking with you yeah. if they knew you. <clears throat> yeah. And some guy just, some, some guy just did that to me a couple of days ago, you know, online. And the, my point, my point is I just, I don't believe everything I read at all anymore. I think it's probably because I'm 46. Eventually you're like, well, that could be, that could be bullshit. That could be, you know, <clears throat> What, I don't know um, for sure. My guess is he did it, but I don't know. What? Uh, um, so, so you grew up in the city. You were, you were, you were a city fellow. What was it? What was the early life out there? Because New York, what, I'm assuming when you were young, New York was not cleaned up yet, right? No. During the '70s, we had a lot of riots. But I was a kid, and we were in Queens at that point, so we okay. just didn't go to Manhattan. And in fact, when I started to go to Manhattan, I remember the first time my parents brought me to Manhattan to see a play or something. They were scared shitless, which made me scared shitless. So I was looking out the window thinking anybody at any point is just going to jump through the window and kill us. Everyone's a but bugger. Yeah. Eventually New York got cleaned up, you know, and uh, it was a great place to grow up. It actually, what I love about New York is that you can have eight things. You could literally, you have eight things to do in LA. We do one thing a day. Like I'm doing this. I'm not doing anything else for the rest of the day. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's, that's LA. So I've been in LA for 20 years. I was in, what am I, 46? So I was there. I was there for 26 years in New York. So I'm kind of a combination of both. And I think being out here has definitely killed my drive and my creativity. Really? But I, th- I think also I'm more relaxed than a lot of my uh, friends in New York. Uh, but otherwise, that's, so I'm like two halves, you know? I think that LA taught me to enjoy life without goals, and New York taught me to go for goals. Some kind of a combination of two. Sorry, go ahead, John. I'm sorry. No, no, go for it. You guys are the worst pairing ever. <laughs> I think there's that, there's that weird delay. Um, it's, it's, it's my, it's my, my shitty tech. Um, uh, <laughs> the, what I was going to say was with respect to you, I'm assuming at some point you moved into the city because you said you were working there and also doing gigs there. Or did you always stay outside the city and just go in? No, I, the, the key is to just live right outside. So it's, it's like living in Manhattan. It's just one extra train stop. So I lived in Brooklyn right at the edge and, okay. uh, it was, it was great. You know, the Ram was still high. This, the, the Manhattan apartments are a little smaller than I wanted, you know, but now I'm, I'm basically living in a Manhattan apartment now. It's really tiny, you know, and the and neighbors the are just that- crazy. I, I, one of the things I think you would probably agree with, I would assume, the, the difference between New York and L.A. is that, you know, when if you're living in the city, you're walking out, there's a lot going on immediately. You walk out the door yeah. here. There's almost nothing well, going on. You got you, you yeah. got to go somewhere to do something. You know, I, I remember when I first moved out there, I was on TV, but the show wasn't popular. So nobody gave a shit. So even the clubs wouldn't use me. But I was on NBC, for God's sakes. But it didn't matter. So I was very lonely and my girlfriend and I had just split up. She moved back to, uh, she moved somewhere else. So I was just like all alone, very depressed, playing in a really shitty room out in Pasadena. And, uh, and I, I was in New York visiting and this is back when, you know, Dave Chappelle was there and Chappelle knows me by face and doesn't know my name, but he knows me. And immediately when he sees me, he usually talks to me. So he said, uh, how do you like LA? And I go, I don't like it. And he goes, go up the coast. I was the same way. Go up the coast. Take your girlfriend. Go up the coast. So when I had a new girlfriend, we went up to uh, Cambria and Paso Robles. Went to the Hearst Castle. 
we were driving down like rolling green hills up to clear blue water. And it was one of the four Mediterranean climates in the world. And uh, there were zebras on our right. And I was like, why the fuck are the zebras? And it turned out the Hearst Castle still has a zoo. So the zebras right up against the highway. And I looked to the left and there's elephant seals just lined up on the shore. I was like, what kind of magical place is this? So I learned to enjoy life uh, in LA, uh, at least enjoy the nature of life. But I feel like New York teaches you uh, to embrace your uh, friends, to embrace goals, to embrace chasing something with your life. Whereas LA, like you sit down and, and go, ah, there's grass, there's sunlight. What do I, what do I need? You know, you don't need much else. This is a very <laughs> serious show. Uh, when you, uh, when you, I'm just, uh, Hey Finn, um, when you were growing up, I want to, I want to take, I want to go back a little bit to the youth of, of New York. When you, if, if you were to look at some movies that you watch now that defined New York of your youth, the what take, movies do the you take, think did a good job of that? The taking of Pelham one, two, three is the clearest example of New Yorkers you could find from my time period growing up. Everybody in that movie with the exception of Robert Shaw is a new, is like a real New Yorker. Walter Matthau, uh, you got the, the fucking, the, 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 the Jewish guy who runs the subway. He's like, get off my train. Oh, go Sue. They all talked like that. They were like, they like, they were it was such a great movie, but everybody in that movie is very much. And Ghostbusters, I find is another good New York movie for all the locals. Uh, because they, the first one, at least like, I'll take the next one, the Jewish guy by the elevator. And, uh, what an asshole. You know, the guy when Rick Moranis runs through the dress, he goes, that's real New Yorkers in that movie, you know? Like, so I find, like, movies with the side characters real in New York. Like, I don't find the out-of-towners representing New York, you know? The, the stuff where they show uh, some of these movies in New York City where, like, there's burnt-out buildings and all that kind of stuff, where was most of that in, in New York back <laughs> the, then? The, 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 Bronx, the, the Bronx had a series of fires in the 70s that was really bad, and there was also a lot of riots in... Uh, Upper the upper you know upper Manhattan, so the seventies it was a bad time uh, for New and, York. And, I, and I'm assuming you were talking about your your parents. I'm assuming that you know adults that were were paying attention to the news also knew where not to go with their family, right? So it's just you just avoided certain yeah. areas. Yeah, yeah, we just, we just didn't go to Manhattan until I I think until I started going to high school. I I started going to Manhattan, you know, and it was uh, yeah, well with my friends and stuff. Like it really the uh, you know. Uh, where the comedy cellar is is my favorite area of Manhattan. The um, if you look at Manhattan skyline, there's buildings, flat buildings. So the flat area is the village, where um, during the '70s they wanted to industrialize the area, and the neighborhood fought back. So for some reason it stayed in under it stayed no buildings, just flat. And it's great, and so it's like there's just a lot of little apartment buildings and restaurants, and the comedy cellar is there, and it's uh, it's my favorite area of Manhattan. And when people go to Manhattan. I didn't like it. I go, where were you? Times Square? You, you don't go to Times Square. You, you can see Times Square for five minutes, but you don't stay there. You go and see the Upper West Side. You see downtown. You see fucking uh, the village. That's New York. Yeah. yeah. It's like standing at, yeah, Times Square is, it's nice to see for, you know, a couple minutes, but <clears throat> then you got to go, you know. Yeah, that's not New York, you know. That's a good yeah. place to buy cocaine at a strip club or something. And now I wonder how they're going to do. I wonder how the porn industry is going to handle the, the, the lockdown. You know well, what I mean? Like, so far, they've well. They've, I mean, in terms of making new content, that's a good question. But yeah. Pornhub <laughs> has, <clears throat> Pornhub has given 
their prime, whatever their prime website is up. You can get that for free now. Their prime members. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> so you can get this, uh, the, their premium content for free now um, by uh, just by logging on. You know what I mean? There's no special anything you have to do. So they're, they're doing that. They started doing it for just like, they were trying to do it for like the doctors and stuff like that, but then it just went across the board. It's for everyone. Interesting. In quarantine. That sounds, like a, that sounds like a dry cough. Do you have Corona? <laughs> I do and not. No. How am I? How am I smoking? And you're the one. You're the one coughing. No, I do not have it, man. I'm actually feeling pretty right. good. Emily says. Emily says she liked you as a guest, Galero. What's that? Oh. One of our one of our comments was she likes you a lot as a guest today. So can, there, oh, you got you thanks. Know, I'm just glad I'm not. I don't want to be boring. You know, I found on Ian's show we were doing a lot of jokes. Uh, if you're gonna ask me questions about my career, I'm gonna get fucking serious. Well, dude, uh, well, that's all right. That's what our, our podcast goes back and forth. Okay. Um, so I'm just curious for you, like acting and, and comedy, um, where did that all come from for you? Like, where did that all start anyway? My father. My father showed us uh, the Marx Brothers and Laurel and Hardy and Abner Costello. And it brought me such joy. Harpo Marx brought me such joy. And Tim Conway. They brought me such joy as a kid that I... All I wanted to do was bring that joy to other people. And your reasons change a lot. But in the beginning, I wanted to bring joy and I wanted the attention. And then after a while, when you get some attention, you're like, I don't like this at all. Attention makes me uncomfortable. I remember once at Boston Comedy Club in New York, I got a standing ovation and I shrunk. Like I went, oh, and I just ran out the door because it actually scared me. And so I don't think I don't really now they all every comedy club is like, oh, what shows have you been on? What you what how many Twitter Twitter followers you have? And I'm like, I don't really want to be famous anymore. But now so it's the exact opposite of what you you need. You know, yeah. as a stand-up comic, you need people to know who you are, but I don't like it. You know, because there's you, always there's always a bunch of assholes out there. Too did many. you do did you do stand-up or acting first? Um I was always acting, but not professionally. And then okay. They kind of happened at the same time. I started stand-up at the old Gotham Comedy Club and Boston Comedy Club in New York. And after about, I got picked up by a manager right away. And the manager worked for Barry Katz. And the manager's name was Vincent Nastri. I'm still with him. 21 years now, I think it is. Awesome. And so we were at Barry Katz for a while. And Barry owned Boston Comedy Club. So I got to play there. And Vincent is really good at getting auditions. So pretty much right when I started stand-up, I started to go out for auditions immediately. And that's how I got the pilot with Tiffany Thiessen that changed my life, you know. But, but I like I, – I know that you've uh, you posted some of this older stuff online recently, um, but you've been yeah. making your own content like before it was easy to do with friends yeah, we and got school and college. And you've always sort of had that kind of bug in you and you've always been doing it. And some of that stuff is really funny. And for the – Thanks. For the, not yeah. just for the, for the time it was done, but like – the effort that goes into like, you see like a funny sketch that you and your friends do, and it's a five minute thing that you put online. But the effort that went into that five minutes is 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 fucking like relentless. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. people with nothing to do, and then getting them to fucking shoot the thing. You know what I mean? And then you have to edit, and then you have to yeah. cut it together, and then everything yeah. that's involved is like. So you must have enjoyed doing it early on. Yeah, when you're talking, thank you. What you're talking about is, by the way, I like you with no beard. <laughs> what you're talking about is, I like you, you clean up really nice. Thank you, man. Voodoo up. Talk about voodoo, voodoo up pictures yeah, and me. Yeah, yeah me, me and my friends in college. I met four guys in college, and uh, when we all lived in Brooklyn at the same time, 
I was like, why don't we, why don't we do some skill? Well, but one guy, Brett, who's really good at editing and really good at cameras. Uh, he, Brett Brazoni was his name. He, we, he shot a short film with us. And then I said, why don't we form a team? So we formed a team after he, we shot that short film. And uh, it's been great. But we used to do it on VHS tapes and uh, way before YouTube even existed. Oh, dude. And now, like, we, like, when people ask me to do skits now, I go, how long? I, I get there and the, the lights aren't set up. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Like, we had a down hat. So, like, and uh, Neil Potter and was a, was a comic in New York and Lenny Marcus, they're occasionally in our skits. And they said, one thing I like about doing skits with you is, like, you're in and out of the car. You get out of the car, you shoot, you're back in the car. And uh, we had everything down pat. We were like a, a real team. And then I moved, and one guy had kid. And so things slow down a little bit as you get older. Yeah. But when I see when I see younger comics posting their skits online, now that this exists for everybody, YouTube, Instagram, and they get a million likes, and I, I'm like, I did that 30 years ago. I get so mad. It's ridiculous. But I get mad. I go, I, I did the same fucking thing. Three. I was like, here it is. And I put it online and I get 300 likes because nobody sees it because my every, every TV show I was on was before fucking Facebook. Well, Friendster. <laughs> it's, what I'm saying is true. Whatever question you give me, I'm going to turn negative. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, well, the, the problem was you're talking about a time when initially you're making stuff, you had to put it on VHS cassettes and hand them to people. Here, watch this. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, when you're done watching it, can you give me back my tape? Yeah, it's the only copy yeah. I have. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, we, we, have a, we have a lot of them. We have a lot. We, like, uh, I'll pick it up. Why not? I'll show you. I'll put it back down. Someone's calling me. Is that a fax machine, Brian? You got a fax machine? You getting the fax? You're all laughing at me, but I'll tell you what doesn't freeze. My home phone. That doesn't freeze. <laughs> These are all the these are all the VHS tapes, and these are all the DVDs we did. Oh wow! Did a lot, yeah. So they're all on YouTube. They're all on YouTube. If you type in Voodoo Up, uh, I think some people have stolen the name since then. Yeah. But VDW Voodoo Up, you'll, you'll see some skits. But thank you for bringing it up because I actually, I'm actually more proud of a lot of that because I had a lot more say. You know, like when I did a when I did Castle. I'll never forget how they 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 kind of chopped up the performance and they took like one they go one take do this one one take do this one take do this and then every take is a different emotion and then they combine the takes so one shot I'm happy one shot I'm angry one shot I'm I like it didn't make and I got very frustrated when I watched that you know same thing with a you know a lot of shows like Superior Donut uh, so a lot of shows are tighter and they take out the laughs on stacked. We did uh, Bill Macy. You guys remember Bill Macy from yeah. Maud? Oh. So he, he he did a character on Stacked. So this is an old guy who just passed away. He We did take one, and then we did take two. And he looked at me and he goes, why are we doing it again? And I realized <laughs> he never they never did multiple takes back then. So I said, oh, they do that now. They do two or three takes. And I go, he goes, I don't like that. I go, I don't like it either. I go, you know why they do it? Because they want to keep... They want the laugh shorter so they can keep in all the lines of their script. So by taking a, so let's say it's a script is 20 pages. The, every, the lines are written for 20 pages, but on everybody loves Raymond, for example, they would write 17 pages so they can keep in the first take the long laughs. That's looked better. The crowd was funnier. The crowd's reaction was real. So a lot of times when you watch something, you go, that's a, that's a laugh track. It's not, it's really just <clears throat> take five. Right. You know what I mean? Interesting. Yeah. 
So but, my uh, point is, um, I, want, I want people to write shorter in sitcoms, you know. And uh, and and anyway. only recording VHS. Yes. Yes. Easier, mm-hmm. way easier. Um, do you? you what, where, bubbly? Yeah. Well, dude, you I'm really day, I'm, my my wife loves the bubbly. Is that hey? Mm. Is that key lime? No, that is apple. The apple. apple, the apple, apple flavor is really good by itself. Nice crisp morning drink. I don't like it with food. Blackberry with food. I threw the can away. Blackberry with food. You, it's very, very they, good. They, no, they say that. the bubbly water. By the way, they say the bubbly water is good for the for the to keep off the coronavirus. So great. That can't be. You true. got that going for you. And you remember, water. Water. Um, stand up. First, first time you did stand up was where and how did it go? Do you remember? Yeah, uh, January fourteenth, nineteen ninety two. I filled the room with friends. Uh-huh. So I, had an unre- I had an unrealistic approach of what was going to happen next. Second time I just <laughs> second time I did stand up was at college. I opened for a hypnotist. I was supposed to do a half hour. My second time I was supposed to do a half hour, and I was like, sure. <laughs> Five minutes in, I go, I'm I'm getting off the stage, and I just <laughs> off the stage. And they, Oh, why? Uh, they, why? What was going so, on? I nobody was laughing. It was my second time performing. Well, you know, <laughs> the second just complete silence. So I had to live at that college for another three years. <laughs> but what I think my driving force is insecurity. So my driving force is insecurity. So li- having to deal with people at a college where I tanked drove me to have the number one comedy radio show on the property, the number one TV show on the property and uh, a, a comedy article in the newspaper. So I really wanted to prove myself. And by the end of my senior year, I think I got a lot of respect, you know, well, like a lot of people would buy me, would buy me drinks in town. Like they knew me from the radio show, they knew me from the TV show. And so I became like a mini celebrity because of what happened, drove me to prove myself. It drove well, you to prove it, yourself to you because <clears throat> don't you think that, <clears throat> excuse me, don't you think that those people would like eventually would have just not remembered that it would have been like okay whatever and then would you have forgotten that the guy who tanked in front of the hypnotist i i wouldn't have no no no. i mean i i just i just i just feel like you i don't know you don't feel like you were out to prove it to yourself as much as you were to prove it to everybody else sure i was yeah okay i used to one of the high schools i went to was uh well the high school i went to was very religious catholic high school even though i'm not catholic i went to a catholic high school so I remember going back to visit it because I was so lost. If your whole life, your best friend is comedy. Like you're not even hitting on girls. You're just interested in comedy. And then you fail at it. You kind of lose your place. So I went back to high school and I spoke to one of the brothers, one of the, the monks. And I told him what happened. And he said, well, maybe you went up there for the wrong reasons. And that changed everything. I was like, oh, yeah, I went up there. To, I went up there like, hey, look at me instead of caring about the job and, and caring about the audience having a good time. Oh, okay. So that changed everything. So now I go on stage. I want the audience to have a good time. I don't even write as much as I should stand up wise, probably because I live in LA, but I enjoy, I, I want the audience to go. That was great. I want the audience going home happy. Uh, so that's, that comes from that. I think from interesting. So yeah. you felt, so in your discussion with him, which, which it totally makes sense, though. I mean, let's be honest. You get into stand-up, it's, it is a selfish place to start. It has to kind of be selfish, right, in order to believe yeah. that you can stand up there and do that. But it was interesting that you were self-reflective enough to go, all right, I need to find out what my 
greater, my, my bigger purpose here is the long game. And you realize the yeah. long game not be as selfish and or meaning, um, not, it seems like you weren't so like you either love my material or you don't. And it's your problem. If you don't, you didn't look at it that way. No, no, I, no, 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 I didn't. I wanted the audience to have fun. Jay Leno had a good quote too. Back when Jay Leno was doing stand up everywhere, I went to see him at St. John's university when I was in grammar school and he was great. And then I saw him in an interview later on. He goes, comedy is 50% material, 50% personality. When your personality doesn't work, your material will carry you through. When your material doesn't work, your personality will carry you through. And I find that to be true. Like on days where I haven't slept and I just got broken up with or somebody's my family's sick, like I can get through by my material, you know? It's, uh, it's interesting. And I think that changed a lot of it too. I really look at it as a job. And some guys like Jim Norton are writing machines. Like they just have a new hour every year. And Ian Edwards. And every time I see Ian Edwards, he does a new tra- Uh-oh. On the material. Am I the only person on the air? Nope. nope. <laughs> I caught it. You got it from you, John. Yeah. Um, so you, um, when you first started doing stand-up, and you said you were kind of doing acting and stand up simultaneously. Uh, yeah. Were you putting Were you putting just the same amount of effort into both? I mean, stand up, as you know, can be an obsession yeah. where you can do six, seven, eight, nine sets a week. With acting, you kind of either got to take a bunch of classes or get into a play or whatever. So, what was yeah. your game plan? I was always lucky with acting. I've been really good at pretending since I was a kid. Uh, okay. Really good, like like unnecessarily good. You know what I mean? Like as kids were playing sports, I'd gather my friends to, to reenact sketches that I saw or short films that I saw. So I was always really good at pretending. So I got leads in grammar school. I played David and David versus Goliath. I played the prodigal son in a lot of religious plays. And then when I, so I didn't have to study so much. I took one class with a guy named Bob Krakow. I'll never forget Louis Schaefer and uh, Jim Norton were in the class. And we had to do, uh, we had to, we had to do a scene. And I had, I had the page and I was, I figured out what the line, you have to read, read it a few times. The guy said, read the scene like three or four times, understand what it means. Read, you know, and I, and I understood what the beats are and what the characters are all about. And I would just do John Candy because John Candy was the most realistic actor I ever saw. So John, I, I would just do him. And then I remember I did this scene and the, the Bob Cracker or the teacher came over and he leaned over in my ear in front of everybody. He said, uh, that was really, really good. And he walked away and all the pretty girls got mad. They were like, isn't it weird how some people aren't good looking in real life or better looking on TV? So that right after my scene, isn't that fucked up? They did that because they were, they were upset that the teacher liked me. Really? So I've always been fighting uh, inferiority complex. There's nothing, nothing will drive you more than woman turning you down. Oh shit. That makes me, <laughs> that makes me real out. Cause I wanted them to see me on TV and I wanted them to go, Oh, I should have fucked him. That's what I wanted. Little did I know that I was going to play characters who never get laid. Thanks. Stacked. Uh, they made me look so unlike. They made me so unfuckable on Stacked. And I was, like, that's the, I was like, that's the best looking I ever looked at my life. And you're telling people I'm unfuckable? Like, I'm looking at my girlfriends, and they're prettier than the writer's wives, and the writer's writing that shit about me. I was really upset. So I was like, I wanted my ex-girlfriends and people who turned me down to be upset. And instead, they're watching me get turned down by Carmen Electra. Great. Thanks, guys. You know, I, I know you're kind of making a joke about that, but I do I do have a question. It's like when you look around and you realize how they see you and what your type is, how do you process yeah. that? 
Uh, slash. John, you know this. When you have the giant beard, the, the, the commercials always say, weird maniac. Oh, yeah, ugly <laughs> fuck. Yeah, well, they That's say I love that director, and then they always always like, janitorial. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. I was so thin. Yeah. On Dexter, I played, I, I, I was so thin. And when I was auditioning, they had a line blacked out. And I was like, I wonder what that line says. And I get the part, and the line's no longer blacked out, and it says, and the fat man sings. I'm not even fat. But I'm not thin. I find that people with, because there's three genetic body types that are predisposed. Endomorph, ectomorph, and mesomorph. And everybody forgets that. Everybody forgets that there's wider scale. If they can be tall skeletons, why can't they be wider skeletons? So there's wider skeletons. And they put on weight easier, much easier. And mesomorphs, if you're not a mesomorph on TV, which is normal looking, then they think you're fat. Remember when Jason Alexander started Seinfeld, he was so thin. But my friend kept saying, oh, he's so fat. When I was a kid, I was like, he's not, he's not fat. But because he's wider-hipped, he's just seen as fat. Yeah, he's so he wider than Kramer or Jerry, so everyone's like, fat. Yeah, he was just wider. He's just wider guy. But it's, it sucks. But anyway, it's just the way, the way people see you is, I like changing that. When my, my agents first had a meeting with me, they said, you know, when Vincent sent us your tape, we didn't, I, I, I didn't get it. I, when I, we didn't watch before I saw the tape, I didn't get it. And, but then I saw the tape and I got it. When I did the pilot, Platonically Incorrect, they didn't, they didn't want me. Tom Shadiak and the writer Darlene Hunt, who plays the, the overly religious woman on uh, Parks and Rec, she's great. Yeah, we they, had, they, had a, they had a pilot, and uh, Tom Shadiak wrote on my 8x10 during the test. He wrote, if they don't take this guy, they made a mistake. And then he handed it to Darlene. So Darlene told my manager that, and the manager told me that. So they ran fake auditions because the woman, who used to be secretaries because they're hot, get promoted to uh, com- comedy vice president of comedy simply because they were hired in the first place because they were hot. It's kind of fucked up. So they felt I wasn't uh, romantic looking enough. So they didn't want me. And this, this is back when I was cute, <laughs> not the job of the hut you see before you. So they didn't... Uh, so Darlene was like, I would have, I would have dated him. And Tom Shadak saw it. So they ran fake auditions for two weeks to run down my option. So this way they go, oh, we, we couldn't find anybody else. So they took me. And one story I always loved about my career is that I ad lived a lot during the run-throughs, the network run-throughs, and and then when I we all they all take the notes and they ask the, the cast to leave. So me and Tom Everett Scott, AJ Langer, Khalid Rocha, we step outside, Alex Scooby. And the network run through has the network the team gives the writers notes. They leave. And the writer, Tom Shadek comes up to me and he goes, do you know that the woman that turned you down stood up on a chair and said, okay, I admit I was wrong about Brian Scalero. <laughs> moments like that get me through. You know what I mean? That I'm like, yeah. yeah. And then there's moments that knock you back down. It's a, so it's a, it's a roller coaster, this fucking job. How many times have you had to go back to your high school to talk to the Monsignor? Uh, I think just just once. <laughs> just the one time that was enough. He gave you everything you ever needed to, to, to have. <laughs> no, it was, uh, life just life just keeps knocking you down. I feel like 2014. Yeah. I remember every New Year's Eve. I'm like, I feel this year's gonna be better. 2014, it was like, oh. 2015 was ah. Oh. 2016 was ah. Oh. 2017 was like, and stay down. You know, <laughs> just stay down. Yeah. So it's so it's uh, now this year everybody's feeling it. The one thing that I really feel about this is how everyone's career is put on hold and we're all going to be knocked down a peg. I've been through that before. So I'm a little more 
Uh, I think I'm a little more uh, calmer about it than I think a lot of people are because I the writer strike uh, knocked knocked my career down. Like everything I've been working for since first grade was taken from me uh, after the writer strike and economy collapse. So I've I've had been through this before. So we're all gonna get knocked down a level for sure. Yeah, you know, uh, you referenced this a long time ago. I, I'm jumping around here a little bit. You referenced this a long time ago, and I know, I know John is a big fan of of Laurel and Hardy. And I, you know, I have kids. Yeah, yeah. I, I have, I have, I have a you know one teenager and one kid that's on the verge, and and it's 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 sad to me that the world has so much information and so many streams and so many different things coming at these kids that I I worry that those types of Abbott and Costellos and the Lowell and Hardys yeah. will just disappear, just completely disappear. And, yeah, yeah. and these kids will never truly know some of the great comedy and where it came from. Like when we were growing yeah. up, I think the, the key word was vaudeville. We never got to see vaudeville. We heard about vaudeville and then we saw it <laughs> play out with Laurel and Hardy and, yeah, and yeah. Abbott and Costello. I'm just curious as to how, how you kind of see those guys now and, and, and the fact that no one's oh, really okay. They, they say that in order to get a script made these days, you got to have five big laughs. Marx Brothers and Lauren Hardy had five big laughs a page. And that's real. That's real comedy. And people don't stand pacing anymore. And I'm one, I remember one director, uh, one guy, wannabe director, wrote online, what's the, be- one of the, what's the best car chase scene you can think of? So the first thing I thought of was, I mean, Blues, Blues Brothers and, and, and Rick, what's that movie with, uh, no, it doesn't matter. But I, I said uh, French Connection, the ending. And he goes, oh, I hated it. I go, what did you hate about it? He goes, it didn't have shaky cam. Like, you need sh- you need to not see the action in order to like the action. That makes, I'd rather watch a Jackie Chan fight scene than any of the fight scene in the Avengers because that's really happening. And that's why the car chase and Smokey the Bandit are better because yeah. that's real fucking cars. So I watch, yeah. so Laurel and Hardy, I know John loves loves him probably even more than I do. And my father, like, Lauren Hardy would, Buster Keaton would fall down a flight of stairs. Incredible. Now when sound entered, Lauren, uh, Stan Laurel's like, well, how do we make this funny? Instead of making him fall down the stairs, we'll have him, uh, we'll have the bucket at the top of the stairs. We'll have Laurel almost, we'll have Stan, uh, Ollie, of Oliver Hardy almost put his foot in the bucket. That'll get a laugh. Almost put his foot in the bucket again. Second laugh. Puts his foot in the bucket, falls down the stairs, big third laugh. Then there's a long fourth laugh where Oliver Hardy just stares at him and Stan Laurel hides. And it's now there's four laughs out of one fall. So sound, they figured, they figured out sound the best. They figured out how to slow uh, physical comedy down and, and pace it and make it a bigger laugh. And that was ingenious. Now Stan Laurel, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. And they and but there there were so many people that didn't make that transition. <clears throat> like, yeah. like talk about a writer strike. It's like when they're like, "Hey, we can hear everyone on these movies now." And there were some people like, yeah. Man, "I don't think anyone's going to want to hear my voice." And everyone's like, yeah. You're right, get the "Fuck out of here!" And yeah. a lot of people's careers went into the shitter because they couldn't they couldn't sing or whatever it was they did on camera before and make yeah. it sound good. So people were like, "No, but that's, Oliver that's and, and Laurel." made that they were very physical and could do, make silent movies that were hilarious and then transition into making those characters yeah. verbal in a way and that about, yeah. everyone related to. If you look at, um, if you know much about the Marx Brothers, 
during the vaudeville times, Harpo would have lines. And then Alexander Walcott, a writer who became Harpo's best friend, he wrote in a review uh, that the that the, the Harpo was brilliant, a genius, but his voice he shouldn't he shouldn't speak he shouldn't speak anymore because didn't think his comedy his voice was suited for comedy. So Harpo never spoke anymore. I mean, in real life he spoke, but not in public in public appearances. He never spoke, and that was somebody who transitioned really well because he had Martha Groucho to do all the talking. And she gonna do all the talking. So that um, that's my that's the best example of a guy who whose voice didn't fit, who still made it. I mean, who's better than Harpo, man? Holy shit! Yeah, but, he, but he's so physical, like everything about like his physicality and like yeah. the movements, all of it was what is what 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 adds to his his yeah. genius. Anyway, you know, I love the I love the fact that you uh, put some of your father's ashes. On the um, the staircase from Olive and Hardy's music box, the piano movie with the piano up the stairs, that staircase yeah. still exists here yeah. in Silver Lake, and John John put some of his father's ashes there, and I always love that story. Yeah, I you think know, that's great. John yeah. has a uh, John always talks about his strong connection between Laurel Hardy and and him and his dad, and I'm just curious. You you referenced that your dad kind of introduced you to some stuff. Do you guys? Yeah. Your stuff. Uh, how was your family in respects to supporting your career and, and influences for you and stuff like that from your family? They were great. I mean, like they. My mother wanted me to have a backup job. I talked talked about this on Ian's podcast, and then once I did my first couple of Wendy's commercials. My mother was like, never brought it up again. And now, 25 years later, she's bringing it up again. Like, you might want to think about, it. you know, I'm going to get a pension. So one thing that's good is about the stack and three sisters, I'm going to get a pension when I turn 65 if I can make it. But I got like, I got like 19 more years left. I got to I gotta come up with something because this <laughs> sucks. This sucks. Well, like, and right now, my pension would be nothing. It would be like, you know, a couple hundred bucks a month. Yeah, it's a, yeah, my luckily mine's okay, but in the year, whatever that is, what is that gonna pay for? A Geico bill? The two thousand is gonna pay for a Geico? It's it's really out of hand. You know? Yeah. It's they don't they don't really want people see fat people on TV, but they don't realize they see them in guest capacity. You don't get any money. That's the reason Jeffrey Wright was working as a shopping a a bagging clerk at fucking uh, Trader Joe's, the guy from Cosby Show, because guest roles get paid crap though. So yeah. if you're not a lead, and if you're not in a lot of commercials, then you, then it's really hard living to make. You know, and you know uh, it's funny you would say that. I I, I remember I, I'm a little bit older than you guys, but um, there was a show called Mannix. Yeah, I was, and Mannix was like he was completely out of shape, a little bit overweight. Yeah, yeah. balding. It's like you would the never best. have a show like that on television now, no, ever. Yeah. You know, I, I really want to do a movie like a zombie apocalypse movie where there's a, a fat, Sorry. where there's a fat, where there's a fat side character, and he's the one who winds up at the end living the most. Not the hot girl, not the tough black guy, but the fat side guy winds up being the last survivor. Like I want to see that movie. I want to see like just people go back to remembering that that uh, that normal looking people can blow can blow your minds. Look at the fucking the girl from who's the old lady from Ireland. Who sang on America's Got Talent Susan and blew everybody away? Susan yeah. Boyle. Susan Boyle. You know, what, I'm, what I'm saying is, like, you, you Louis C.K. had that good joke. Uh, isn't it weird that every singer is hot? What are the chances that every hot girl is, is a good singer? Like, what? That to me is amazing. It's true because it's all about physicality now. It's like high school. 
But um, I forgot what your question was. <laughs> oh, well, I, no, was that? I tried to remember. Was it? Was it Mannix or was it? Uh, was it? Was that a different character? Mannix. No. So was, I was. I was going back Little to the original. Thing, which is about the influence Little. of uh, you. You had referenced early that your dad introduced you to a lot of the. Um, the yeah, post vaudeville yeah. performers, um, you know, a yeah. perfect example, even like, even I mean, love him or hate him. Like Bob hope was huge for decades. And like, you're getting to the point now where like, they're taking his name off the airport. You start looking at these things and you're like, where are we just, are we just decided that there's going to be certain decades of performers and comedy that just don't matter to us anymore. And that makes it me is weird. Like, well, when you, when you look at the fucking, uh, the, the, the people who died, uh, the Oscar Memorial, they forgot Tim Conway. Everybody was all upset about uh, about Luke Perry, and I'm like, they forgot Tim Conway, Private Eyes, Prize Fighter, Apple Dumpling Gang, Apple Dumpling Gang rides again, uh, Speed Two, uh, Dear God, so many great. He was great in so many things. They were like, yeah, who made that decision? Just uh, the young people don't care about the older people. When I when I grew up in a time where uh, Barney Miller was on TV, you know what I mean? Like people in their 40s and 50s were on TV. And uh, that's not the case, really. You'll see us as side people or the father, but you don't see them as the lead anymore. And I think that's, I can't blame the young people. That's what that, it's the, the people in charge are caring more about the young people what the young people watch than us. Yeah, I guess the system may think that no one is interested. I don't necessarily, I think that may be a, a little bit misguided, but it is funny you bring up. I mean, oh my God, when I was a kid, I would watch a movie with, with George Burns, the guy was like 180 years old, and it did, I didn't care. Yeah. I was a kid. If it funny, funny, it didn't matter. And I would watch a movie with Madeline Kahn. I didn't, or, or fucking yeah. uh, uh, Lily Tomlin. I didn't care there was a woman. I didn't even notice it was a woman. No. Now that you know, like, I'm the first woman. This I'm like, no, you aren't. <laughs> no, you aren't. I know the first woman to do this was Lucille Ball. Not you, Audrey Meadows. How great was Audrey Meadows? You know, like like. Uh, uh, Madeline Kahn was one of my favorites. I mean, uh, oh, hot, hot, hot and funny. So hot funny. and funny. You know? <laughs> so funny. Just, really, just really funny. Uh, anyway. Where did you go? Did you, did, where did you go to college? So you do everything. Did you stay within the like the, the New York uh, metro area for both high school and I went, uh, I went upstate to an awesome college called New Pulse. John DeToro is our most favorite graduate. And it was a big on acting. But I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't in the theater department. I was in the communications department. They had a great communications. And that's why I got the radio show and the TV show. And, uh, it was a great, it, it was, it's a great hippie school. And, um, I remember <laughs> it, was, it was always protests. So they, there was a protest once where Pataki wanted to get rid of EOP or something. So everybody was, was picketing. And I didn't know what EOP was, but I remember what's happening when there was a picket scene where they kicked Roger and rerun out of the apartment and all the tenants were going, the Roger, the rerun, the rent, the Roger, the rerun, the rent. So in the middle of this <laughs> protest, I was going, the Roger, the rerun, the rent. And nobody knew what I was doing. <laughs> no and I did that, I did that for five hours. <laughs> and I loved it. I fucking love it. was a great place to, to go to college because everyone cared so much and I didn't. And I was like pretty much the head, one of the head media guys. So I got to entertain them and yet make fun of them at the same time. It was fun. It was a great college. Do you think yeah, it was in that, Anthony Bourdain? Anthony Bourdain goes there in one of his episodes. Okay. Do you th- you, know, you you touched on something else? Do you think a part of your success early came because you didn't care because you didn't you didn't stress about everything? 
Uh, I, if you look at my acts, there's nothing political in it. There's very little uh, opinions in it. And they said that's probably one of the reasons that's held me back now because everybody wants to hear, what are your thoughts on this? Like, I'm not telling you. It's none of your business. <laughs> you know, Abigail just told us to buy war bonds. That's it. We didn't find out, you know, you know, George Carlin never even spoke about his life. Nobody yeah. even knew he had a brother. We didn't, I didn't know he had a brother until he died. That was one of his biggest fans. Like, it's not, it doesn't always have to be Richard Pryor talking about this or Dave Chappelle talking about this. There's, a, there's just entertainment as well. And, and so it's, um, I think I cared about life. I cared about people and I cared about myself and I cared about my family and my friends and I cared. But I think what drove me was almost uh, caring too much about uh, about things. Like I'll take things way too seriously and then I come up with a skit about it. But I, uh, I'm not caring about the seriousness of life. That it's just The things that little people decide to get mad at for five days, that's kept me a little saner. Like when everybody gets upset because Billy Ellis liked, Eilish liked a quote or liked a tweet or something, you know what I mean? It's really doesn't make any sense. I'm not going to drive myself crazy about that. And it seems like the world, Joe Rogan said, uh, everyone's already at a nine, like a scale one to 10 of the anger scale. Everyone was already at a nine just waiting. And it's true. Yeah. It's fucking true. I, I keep getting the, people keep getting mad at me on the internet and I don't, I don't engage. I just kind of like well, just block you- them and move on. For for the most part, I don't think <clears throat> unless you're unless you've created an internet persona that is engaging everybody and just being a raging dickhead, that's one thing. Yeah. But like for for comedians, <clears throat> I honestly don't think we should be like engaging that kind of shit at all because it just gives those people a Fodder. window and a foot in the door of yeah exactly you know, they want to use your 25 years of hard work to make it by taking you down and i go you'll get it for 15 minutes but i've been at this for 25 years so by attacking me or by attacking somebody else the only time it really worked was harris burrell uh what's that his name the guy who took down cosby oh oh uh, Hannibal Bur- Hannibal Bur- Bur- uh he's funny but his career definitely uh took off after he did that he was already on 30 rock he was already on that on the Eric Andre show. Everybody knew who he was. He's funny. When he did that, he really became famous. That was the one time it really worked. Yeah. He was, oh. he was working. He was working oh. at it. He wasn't trolling. He wasn't yeah. trolling, you know? But all he, Cause all he said was shut up. He, he, he said it in his act. as like a throwaway comment. It's like, shut up Cosby. You fucking rapist. And he goes, yeah, he raped people. you didn't know that. And then like, people were yeah, like, huh? and then like the thing that everyone else had been talking about for years, just yeah. came to the forefront of everything. It was like, whoa. That, and I'm sure yeah. Cosby was like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. And it's funny how all the women have been talking about this for years, but nobody gave a shit. The one yeah. time a comic said something, it was like, oh, it must be real. They're giving us way too much credit. And I think there's one good thing about this outbreak is that it's going to make, it's going to remind the world that entertainers aren't really as important as grocery store clerks. You yeah. know, we're, we're not, a, we're think- not a necessity. Yeah, as as medical as medical people, and yeah, exactly. The farmers, that's what's important. Truck not, drivers, not the three of us. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that I think this is going to remind people of that, and I'm glad. But they still want us. They don't, they don't yeah. need us. You know, you still people are still going to need to laugh and want to laugh and like. But I agree with you. We become we become very non-essential in all of this, which is like we, we were the we were the first people to get rid of. They get rid of us right away. No more social gatherings. No more clubs. I'm like, uh, us strippers and waiters. Gone. Yeah. 
first. Yeah, and, first. and Hollywood yeah. followed suit. Like I was working on a TV show that just went down like that. Really? We loaded really? in. What was it? It was a reality TV show. I was just doing locations on it. And we'd loaded in. Yeah. And it was like a two week, supposed to be a, a work through April. The 13th, they were like, no, we're done here. Bye. Everyone went home. Wow. Wow. Hey, Brian, you brought yeah. it up earlier. Um, I, wow, I, that's I, I'm about, sorry uh, to hear that. Yeah, there's a lot of people though. That's a lot of people right now. Sorry, Brian. No, no, that's okay. You brought it up earlier that um, that you worked with kids. What was what? Where, where did that come from? What was that all about? Well, the, the people I worked with, well, first they were, they were adults. They were adults. Uh, mentally. Sorry, sorry, sorry. That's right. They were mentally handicapped. They had a, a several forms of mental retardation. There was mental retardation. There was Down syndrome. There was autistic. There was fragile X. And I worked at houses for them, where I'd be there. They would go to work or school, and they'd come home. I'd pick them up. I'd take them home, um, you know, do their goals with them for the day, give them medication, make the lunches, make the dinner, uh, watch TV with them, hang out with them, uh, bathe them. I used to wipe their ass. I wasn't part of the job, just did that for fun. And then I would uh, watch I'd, <laughs> Then I'd watch TV with them and hang out and be their friend and also their home counselor. And, and then uh, I'd sleep there. And in the morning, I'd make sure they were all showered and dressed and take them, take them to work. I did that for a long time. And, and did, uh, did that did that give you perspective on life? I mean, was that something that you you no. you, you stumbled upon an accident? How how did that all come about? And what did you get out of all of that? Yeah, I got I got it through my high school. The the company, you know, the people who ran my high school, the religious marriage brothers, they were called. They owned the property. They, they would have camps for mental retardation adults, mentally re- retarded uh, kids, kids with AIDS. We were the second camp, right behind Paul Newman for kids with HIV in the country. The second one. And I worked there, and that was before everybody knew about HIV. I remember my friend had a little kid on the shoulders, and the kid just puked on his head. And the first thing I thought was, "Well, Darren's got AIDS." <laughs> you didn't know. Because we learned. We, we learned. Yeah, we learned a lot there. And uh, so it just—it's uh, the way. It's just the way it went. And uh, so then, when I got when I was there, I met other people who owned the houses, and I actually got work there. And that was the job that really helped my career because. I would I would make do twenty hours on Sunday and I'd do twenty hours on Wednesday, and I'd have Tuesday, a Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday to do stand up and audition. And if I didn't have a job like that, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. I'd be probably happy with health insurance somewhere. <laughs> well, 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 well stated, well stated, sir. You know uh, there was a um, a video you posted. Uh, a couple of days ago on Instagram, where where you were showing uh, people around your house yeah. and showing pictures yeah. and memorabilia, and I'm just curious because I, John and I talk about this all the time as well. I, I've I moved out here in 2000. Ever since I was a kid, I was fascinated with Hollywood <clears throat> and the whole concept of Hollywood and and all the parts of it, not just the in front of camera, behind the camera. Loved it all, and I always promised myself after I moved out here to never lose that fascination of how cool it is to be a part of that system when I was a part yeah. of it, when I am a part of yeah. it. And I like to celebrate it. I don't think you should ever get over it. And I kind of felt like when I was watching you walk through your house, like you really, you really still appreciate it. Like you still kind of get giddy yeah. about the fact that Hollywood's kind of a cool thing to be a part of. Nothing, nothing more exciting than somebody who wanted to do this since he was in first grade to being to driving on the lot. When you drive on a lot, you're like, even for an audition, nothing better than going for work. Like driving on the Warner Brothers lot, having a spot and going to work and sitting next to, I remember the, I did Shameless 
and I walked in and I'm sitting next to William H. Macy. I'm doing and I'm sitting next to um oh my god, the girl from Married with Children, not Applegate. No. Come on. The mother. Yeah, from Tons of Anarchy. Uh yeah. I keep wanting to call her uh Peg Bundy. Uh, Kathleen Kathy uh Katie Seagal. Thank you. I can't believe I forgot her name. The story I'm gonna tell is gonna make me look so bad now. Katie Seagal, I went. I worked with her on Superior Donuts and I walk in to Shameless and I sit down and I look down and the name next to me is Katie Seagal and I just worked with her about four months ago. So she walks in, sits down next to me. I, I let her talk to everybody and I go, you remember me? She goes, you didn't move back to New York. How's the multiple sclerosis? I'm like, she remembered everything. She remembered everything. I was thinking about moving back to New York when I got diagnosed with MS. She knew I had MS. She like knew everything and I forgot her fucking name. That's crazy, huh? <laughs> No, that dude, dude. How about this? We're, I guarantee the next birthday party I go to after this is all said and done, I forget the words to "Happy Birthday." You know what I mean? It's all clean as I wash my hands, and now I'm gonna go out and just brain fart the lyrics. Like, I'm gonna forget the words to "Happy Birthday." <laughs> just because I've been—that's all I sing when I wash my hands now, because you're supposed to do it. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah. Like I do it. I sing yeah. "Happy Birthday" like three thousand times a day now. So when it comes time to do it in front of other people, I'm gonna be like, kick, kick, kick. It was the worst. This is it's like so. I'm, I'm watching everything. A box gets delivered. I get the box on the door. I put it on the counter. I don't wash it off the, the whole counter. box. Spray it down outside. I, I open it. I can't. I got maniacs out there. So then I open the box and then I take out the bag and I open the bag and I rinse off the bag and I clean the other bag. The bag's inside and I clean the box. Throw the box away. Wash my hands. Wipe down the handles of the door and then I fucking wipe down the counter because so I put the box. It's a mess. And that's and how it's you're like, not going to get sick. There's one tiny mistake. One mistake. It can live under your nails. They want you to, they want you to trim your fingernails because it can live under your nails. How the, I don't even have a nail brush. It's, it's like, uh, I, it's just, this is crazy. This is too much. It's too yeah. much. Because it one, one guy ate a bat. Because one guy ate a bat. How fucked up. One guy ate a bat and now... Thousands and thousands and thousands of people are dying because one guy ate a bat. I remember Anthony Bourdain, they were eating scorpions on a stick in China. I was like, I never want to go there. Comes like, oh, I'm going to China. I'm like, why? They put marijuana smokers in prison. Why the fuck? They put them in prison and they killed some of them. Why the fuck would you want to go there? They eat scorpions on a stick. And the guy ate a bat. But China, the cold, heartless people in China, they had a down pat. They took all the sick people. They put him in a pen and let him die. And it's fucking his heart. And that's horrible. But it worked. That's that horrible. No. Well, so yeah. far, then they try to all go back to work and they're like, oopsie daisy, not all gone. Everyone go back, go back home. Yeah, it's not. And that's still there. It's yeah. really bad. It's really bad. Well, you have you know, to, like I'm, you said, you have to try to find the positive out of it. And you have a really clean place now. Well, the part I'm showing you. Okay, fair enough. What's the um, bed is still hey the Brian, not good. Brian, my buddy Alec uh, loves your voice. He just wanted to ask you if you've ever done any voiceover work. I know you have, but you've done a bunch of cartoons. Uh, Life and Times of Tim on HBO. I, I love that lot. show, by the way. I love yeah. that show. I, I was a big fan of that. The guy is one of the most loyal people in the business. Still to this day, he calls me in for things. I can't, I so many producers I've killed for that don't even remember my name. And this guy was like, uh, he remembers me. And keeps calling me back in. He's great. Steve Lodarian is his name. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, I did that. And I did, uh, I was the voiceover for the show, Louie. Oh, right. Louie, like, coming up next on Louie. 
an all new <laughs> Louie, only on the fence. Yeah, and yeah. I got that because Louie wanted a subway announcer to be the uh, to be the voice. So I know subway announcers don't have them anymore, but I used to go next up 48th Street, next stop coming up, Louie. I would do that. Yeah. And then I got hired, and then they didn't want me to do that. I'm like, <laughs> okay. So I didn't do the thing that I was hired for, but I did the voiceover, and it was fun, but it was difficult because wherever I was in the country. I would get a phone call and have to find within two hours, find a location to record oh, no that shit. did um, ISDN, that did a landline thing. So I remember being in New Orleans or Nons, and they called me. I had to call an open micer to pick me up, give him half my money to drive me and wait. Took me to an old man's house. He had dead frogs all over his lawn, dead frogs everywhere. And I was like, where the fuck? I went to his basement and he had a little booth made of, of cushions and I had to go in the cushions and, and it was a weird job. And I go, and they were, they were so excited that I was doing something in their town for TV, you know, but it's oh like, it God. led to a lot of funny. Yeah. And then, uh, and then he jerked off and now I have no work. <laughs> that was, and I kept it the cup and I keep it with my memorabilia. So <laughs> it's a win-win everybody. Uh, what? We get so mad. He, just, he just jerked off. Wasn't Wendy Williams. Who's the woman? Who, who, oh, I hate that one. She literally made fun of a woman the day after she was murdered. She's on TV. Louis C.K. jerked off, and he's not on TV. Oh, we're not going to get into that, dude. <laughs> All right. Uh, I have a question for you um, with with respect to what was a the, what was the first um, acting gig that you got where you were like, "Holy shit, this is this is really cool." Like I like it almost becomes surreal for just a sec. Uh, well, the, the, I remember uh, there was the two Wendy's things. And then after Wendy's, I did uh, Sydney, Sydney Lamet, the director of Dog Day Afternoon, Ooh. had a TV show called uh, uh, 100 Center Street with Alan Arkin. And I and I went to an audition where Sesame Street is and I and Sydney Lamet is sitting behind the desk. And I was being I was like, I'm I'm auditioning for Sydney Lamet, just me and him. And uh, I got hired, and I thought that was pretty surreal. So the men would come and give me notes, and and he was, you know, it was a real, uh, real experience. And that that was odd, but uh, I remember uh, a lot of times when I did Three Sisters, I never smoked weed. I would smoke weed at night, but the one day I smoked before a scene where I didn't have any lines, and I walked in and I sat down, and next to me is Peter Bonners, who was the dentist from Newhart, yeah, in a bunch of stuff. So I looked to my left, and there he is. I just start laughing. Because even though I've worked with him, I've worked with him for a year and a half, but suddenly on marijuana, I realized how surreal it is. But I'm now, I'm now in the TV, talking to the TV guy that I'm watching. And I started laughing, and I'll never forget it. And I remember going back home and showing the mentally handicapped people that I was on TV. I put on the TV and I was on it, and they all were like, "No, no!" They didn't understand how we how we could be in two places at once. We were there, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, and they just didn't make any sense to them, and they were upset. But uh, I thought they'd be happy. <laughs> but uh, and also on uh, on Stacked, one of the best moments I ever was the uh, the president of Fox came down to the set. The audience is there as the end of season one, and he goes, "I he took the microphone. He goes, I just want to say that I've just picked up Stacked for a second season." And the crowd went, "Yay!" And I looked to my left, and there's Christopher Lloyd. Christopher Lloyd looks at me, and he goes, "Huh?" And we hug. Now I'm hugging Christopher Lloyd on the set of a Fox sitcom that got picked up for a second season. That was probably one of the best, most surreal moments. We're like, wow, 
I'm like, I'm here. And then going out to dinner with him and his girlfriend was just like, I'm in, I'm in the, I'm in the world now. Then that fucking writer strike. (laughs) But you know, it is, but it's, there is the way you describe that though, that that's kind of that thing that it's almost like, for a lot of people, they have those dreams. Like, like you know, you you yeah. you, you grow up, you watch Taxi, or you watch Back to the Future, and you're like, man, I wonder what it would be like to hang out with Christopher Lloyd. And the next thing you know, you're yeah. hanging out with Christopher Lloyd. I was his friend, you know. It's like we went to dinner together and stuff. He, uh, and I, I, I'm very smart. I know the things that get celebrities to talk. Like when I met J.K. Simmons, I'm sure everybody brought up Juno and Whiplash. I said, you you were great in Lady Killers because I knew. That that's a movie he put his heart and soul into that nobody watched. And he went, oh man, and he he, he opened up. When I met Matthew Perry, I talked I talked about uh, almost heroes. He got so excited. He was like, you know, I love that movie. I really put, really committed to that movie. I was like, I know you did. So I just like when I met Christopher Lloyd after a couple weeks, I was like, I gotta tell you this one thing you did that really pissed me off. He goes, what? I go, I don't want you to get mad, but it really upset me. He goes, what? What? And I go, when you killed the shoe and who framed Roger Rabbit. When he put the shoe in the dip and killed it, it was just a squeaky shoe. It couldn't even speak. Why'd you kill the shoe? And he laughed and he goes, I'm really sorry. <laughs> it was this great, this great moment, you know? So I've had, I've had those moments. I'm hoping there's an act three. I'm hoping this is an act three, that there is another act three waiting, but it doesn't matter. I had, you know, I had those moments and that's more than a lot of comedians have. And I'm very lucky. And, uh, I got to see it firsthand, and a lot of it's crazy. Like, every show I'm on, there's at least one woman who explodes. Either they start pretending to be sick, or they start throwing fits. There's one woman, there's always a woman on every show who seems to want to take it down. And I never understood that. And I, I literally, um, it's not always women, but I'm, I shouldn't say woman, because twice it was women and once it was men. Uh, so, uh, it really uh, it sucks because I, I didn't like it. I didn't like that that some, that your dream can be destroyed by other people through no fault of your own, and that that's I think the, the lore of stand up. Whereas at least at that moment, not so much where your career goes, but at that moment when it's you and the audience is the most honest and fair thing that could possibly be in entertainment. Do you when with stand up? Do you have any memories of like a, a moment that became surreal for you in stand up? Well, there's the bad moments. Those are pretty surreal. Ah, we all have those. <laughs> I mean, was there I mean, one again? You know, because it's like anything. Stand up is like a fraternity, a sorority, if you will, depending on where you're coming from. It's a club that you that you so that, that you get to the point where you want to feel like you're in the in of the club, just like in acting. I mean, was there ever moments where you're like you're kind of looking around, and you're like, yeah, all right, you know what? I've I've accomplished yeah. something. It feels good. Yeah, I think I think they're just smaller moments. Like just being at the comedy cellar or the comedy store and realizing I'm on the bill with huge guys. And uh, and I'm like I remember David Spade coming up to me going, I really like that one joke. Oh my god, you know, and and like or Seinfeld or I remember Raymond uh, Raymond Ray Romano was looking at me. He saw me once at the comedy cellar, just standing there, and he goes, he kept staring at me. And I go, yeah, I worked on your show. And, and he goes, oh, my God. And then like, he watched my set. And he was like, oh, that was really good. That's Those moments are – you have those great moments where you work with people that you've always admired. Or when suddenly I did a I did a show in Vegas for 24-7 Comedy run by Phil Izzetta. And he booked me and Frank Caliendo and uh, Billy Gardell and, and um, 
Bobby Slayton and uh, Jackie, uh, Jackie Marling. And uh, I destroyed for like 3,000 people. Just destroyed. And uh, you go home to Facebook later and you get five ads. You know, but <laughs> that moment, I'm like, at that moment, I'm like, yeah, I can do this. And like that, that was a great moment, you know, where it's uh, where suddenly you're just, you're, you're killing. And like, you know, when you open a lot of, open for Joe Coy or something, you, you get his audience for like five minutes. It's a tremendous thrill. Yeah. You know, and I love the, I love playing the comedy seller. I love, I remember when, when I first started comedy in the 90s, there was, um, there's no, there's very few comics. There's no internet. There's no PC. There's no way for your career to be ruined by what happens on stage. And uh, I would go to the comedy cellar and Greg Giraldo, Patrice O'Neill, Jim Norton, uh, Nick DiPaolo, uh, Mark Marin, uh, Louis C.K. And it's all as a lineup, Ted Alexandro, me, Tony Rock, fucking Ben Bailey, DC Benny, just great comics. And then uh, Robert Kelly. And then you know, I, I would just sit there and laugh all day. All night, you know, just laugh, 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 uh, brilliance. And that's that's a moment that's never going to come back. Those comics at that age, at that time of life, in that place, will never come back. There's a great quote in uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Where he goes, if you look out the window with the right pair of eyes, you can see that moment where the wave broke and suddenly rolled back. And that's, I think, New York 95 to 2000, before the internet. These brilliant comics, like Dave Chappelle, where nobody was watching. And they just were killing it. And it was, and you were, I was a part of it. I was going on after them and before them. And I was killing as well because the crowds were the comedy seller at that time is like the comedy store doesn't make mistakes. Everybody on the lineup was killer. And uh, it was great fun to be a part of that. Tony rock wanted to take a picture of all the comics, like, um, like that famous Harlem jazz picture that Tom Hanks is searching down in that uh, airport movie. Okay. He wanted to take a picture of all the comics like that. And it was a great idea, but we never did it. But I wish we had. It was a great moment. And that was probably the most happy I was, uh, was those five years going into the city. I remember I did Montreal Comedy Festival and the New Faces. Kevin Meany was the host. Uh-huh. Kevin Meany didn't do well. Neither did the first comic. And, and I didn't get a laugh till halfway through. It was a way, it, it bothered me so much that. They put me up there too early. They put me up too early in the lineup, put me up there too early in my career. And it, I thought it would fuck up everything. And I was walking to the Boston Comedy Club a week later. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, I was really depressed. Everybody in the business saw me. And I said to myself, who gives a shit? You're performing at a comedy club getting paid. And I, and I, I was like, that's what you wanted. And so, then I went on stage and I, and suddenly I was just, it was all new Brian. It was just killing naturally. And that's where everything led to. So the failure led to the success. It, I talk it, a lot. No, it's, hey, it's, a, it's a, it's a great place to put a button on it. So I, I just want to, you know, first off, man, I've always enjoyed, you know, being around you and, and enjoyed watching Thanks, you, Brian. you know, Thanks. Um, Thanks and, to you guys as well. The two of you guys as well. Thank you. Um, but, and I really appreciate you coming on, uh, and, uh, and sharing with us. I know it's, I, I love, I always believe everybody, whether it's you, me, John, or, you know, Rick on the street corner, everybody's got a story to tell. Everybody's lived a life. Everybody's had interesting things and not so interesting things happen. And I, I just, I love hearing people's stories, man. So I really appreciate you Thanks. being willing to share. I, I, 
No, I thought to myself, I didn't want to come off like, especially now things are bad for everybody. I didn't want to come off like, hey, I'm talking about me and my career, right? You know, that's and I hope I hope I'm just serious. For but that's what we want. That's What's what our that? listeners like. We're talking about the entertainment industry. Right. We're talking about people who are deep in it as you are. You know what I mean? And like who have helped, seen the ups and downs and who have and have, uh, you know, hung in there. And like you said, like there's a, another third act coming and like. I don't think, I I think as long as we hang on, I don't think it's over. You know what I mean? Well, it's 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 better. It's like it's like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's why I love the movie so much. Is that fucking connection? That, that it's that, like it, he I fell down, but he enjoyed he enjoyed he found enjoyment in the work, and that's what it's about. I could have watched yeah. just that storyline of him mm-hmm. becoming like I could have watched that without any of the other parts of the movie, with no Brad Pitt, with nothing else. I could have watched that yeah. storyline for five hours. Dude. Yeah. I loved, I loved that little yeah. kid and I and her, her interaction with him. And when he was like, was "Great, oh, yeah, I'm gonna nail this fucking guest star role." Like, impressed, little girl. That was so. Everybody laughed, but I didn't find it funny. I found it surreal. It was and if awesome. you can't identify with it, a lot of people have blocks up against actors and directors, and they go, "What? What? You know, you're not part of real life." I'm like, well, like he's reading the book. He goes, "The guy used to bust Broncos. So that's what he was good at." doesn't have to be acting. It goes with anything. Something you're good at, you get older, and you're not good at it anymore. Well, they don't want to see you anymore. Whatever the reason. And that's how to enjoy your life after that. And that's what's really important. When I see a 20-year-old comic getting really excited and really big, I'm like, oh, I'll see you in 20 years. <laughs> see, see, hopefully. See how you feel then. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully I'm in 20 years. I can't go away. I've got live stream now. So, I, you know, I'm... I'm <laughs> You'll never go away. I'll never go away. <laughs> thank, thank, thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed yeah, both, I enjoyed both of you. You're two good guys in a, in a sea of maniacs. You're two good, good guys. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, John. You got anything in closing there? Uh, no. Thanks for uh, listening. The audio for this will be up on iTunes later today. I'll post up. I'll tag you and everything, and I'll put it on Thanks. social medias. Um, Great. And pending the fact that I'll put it up. What's that? Yeah. Is it pending the fact that I don't screw it up? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. And everybody, yeah. Stay, care, everybody. stay home, stay safe, do what you need yeah. to do to get stay through. Stay home. Stay home. Yeah. yeah. And, it, it, and eventually it will be over and some form of normalcy will come back. Don't panic. And if somebody is sick, if you are listening to this and you are not feeling well, I am so sorry. I hope you get through this safely. Yeah. Take care. Everybody. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Hollywood Anonymous. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Hollywood Anani. That is short for Hollywood Anonymous. You can also follow John individually at John Huck and myself, Brian Irwin, at Brian Irwin on Twitter as well. Both of us can be found on Facebook. You can also Google us and contact us directly, HollywoodAnonymousGuys at gmail.com. Thank you again so much for listening, and please don't forget to subscribe 